Um, to be a Negro, to be a Negro in this country, and to be um, relatively conscious, is to be in a state of rage. Almost, almost all of the time. You wonder why I spit the truth and not to make no dope. To make a difference. Welcome to Making a Difference. I'm your host, Ken Macon. Here with a young man who played for uh, the undefeated uh, 2004 Auburn Tigers. That's a heck of an introduction. And if you really know, you know, <laughs> about that particular team and the coach, you'll understand why this conversation is so important. Not just, you know, the coach, but obviously just the idea of reparations and paying the players and all of that. But nevertheless, dynamic brother here. It's not only a former player who made it to the NFL, he's also a trainer. He's also very conscientious in the way of player, uh, college um, athlete empowerment. And so I'm glad to have Troy Reddick on the podcast today. Troy, how you doing, man? Thank you very much, Ken. Thank you for the platform and the opportunity to communicate about these issues as well. And I've been a follower for years now with your platform and your programs and your writing. I really appreciate it. And I think it's very intentional and insightful. Man, I, coming from you, man, I truly appreciate that sincerely. I uh, alluded to the coach and, of course, 2004. I mean, what an incredible journey. It's almost been 20 years now. Just goes to show, man, time waits on none of us. But you did play for Tommy Tuberville, and I do want the audience to listen to some of the comments that, um, that your former coach made. I'm going to play those now. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bullshit. They are not owed that. So, Troy, hearing those comments, uh, and I'm fairly sure you, you know you may have heard them even before we played it for the listening audience. What are your thoughts on those comments? Well, my thoughts is he finally has a platform and an opportunity to really show who he is as a man and what he feels about his former players and the communities he's recruited these players from. He has understanding of how he plans on benefiting from existing culture and white supremacy, and he thinks that that is something that he earned. And reparations is not something that Black people in general, people like his players from communities that his players came from, that helped make him a millionaire and ultimately get him elected as senator of the state of Alabama, which he doesn't truly represent because he is an Arkansas boy and he's also had residents in Florida and Texas. So is he truly there for the people of Alabama? No, he is not. But that is the city. And I mean, that is the state where he was most known. And imagine a bunch of Alabama fans voting for the coach that whooped their butt for six years in a row. (laughs) But That coach didn't actually whoop that team's butt. It was those black players from Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, Texas, South Carolina that had the impact that changed the fortunes of that Auburn program and made them, uh, gave them the opportunity to dominate a real rival in the prime of their growth and the growth of college football and the money that's on the table currently. I don't like to project. At the same time, I think this is an important place for this discussion to go just in your experience with coaches college high school wherever how many coaches would you say share the same sentiment that Tupperville does and how problematic is that when so many of these coaches recruit and exploit black players I couldn't give you a how many I just know that the thought process is consistent from the youth through college as well as the pro level and that is with black coaches as well Hmm. they have an understanding of how the game is going to reward them and their role in it and they want that to they want that system to stay in place so you have a lot of black coaches a lot of former black players from these black belt towns around the south that absolutely believe the same thing as tommy tuberville because they have theirs now it's up to them to actually be a gateway for others. 
they are literally at the precipice where they feel like they have transitioned and they have made it in life where the systematic things that happen to black people have no bearing on them. Yet we saw the situation with the coach at the Miami Dolphins, Brian Flores. Mm, I remember. And here's his opportunity to bring attention to the slight of African-American coaches in the NFL. Well, that same coach probably has never spoken out against the current system on the collegiate level, high school level, or even on the behalf of the players at the NFL level that he's been, he's had a front row seat to this, but he wants people to care about him and what happens to him. And that's very similar to kind of how uh, prime is approaching things at Jackson state. I want to ask you this before I talk about HBCUs and, and ultimately prime, how much of football culture plays a role into you know, this, for lack of a better term, doggy dog mentality where there is no, there's not a, a cohesion. There's not a, I mean, we obviously on the gridiron, there's a, a brotherhood, if you will, but it just seems like being in, in these wars, if you will, or, you know, being in these situations just in terms of sport yeah. don't really create um, a level of camaraderie in the way of unionizing and advancement. Why do you think that is? Is that, is that football culture? Or is that something else more insidious maybe? It is definitely something more insidious, especially when the coaches allude to where certain demographics are more um, likely to have certain assets for their use, like the speed of South Florida or the size in Texas. That is a common understanding and communication in the coaching circles at these levels and even from the commentators. And the people have an expectation of where they're getting a player, what familiar attributes they kind of come with. Well, that's a plantation mindset because this mix of people who seem to be a little bit more faster than other regions in South Florida come from communities that were built around plantations. And there was breeding that happened. You know, they would select that female with that prime male to actually breed them to produce a more profitable slave. So, We have a genetic evolution that has made a large market around the efforts of these athletes from these communities in the form of sport. So much so that we actually acknowledge the sport and its importance to being bigger than that of these same players from these same communities that are these citizens and their families supported the growth of these communities. They're taking wealth out by taking this player to a PWI because they have the best to offer that kid. And then there's the familiar burden of making sure that that kid makes enough money so he can uplift his whole family and even uh, even further his whole community. So it definitely plays a huge role. And I understand why a black coach can get to that level and want to separate himself from others like him whether it be from his own family, community, or from his previous team, because the coaches communicate things to their team. When a player who had a great career, but you know was challenged in other areas during his career, where he maybe didn't perform as well, and he has a certain persona or, or is viewed a certain way amongst that team, when that player doesn't make it to the NFL, Tommy Tuberville felt emboldened enough to say, don't be like this player coming to background here, begging for opportunities and begging for a hand up and stuff like that. And guys laughed. I'm like, you're laughing at your former teammate, a guy who was a stud, a guy who led us in that undefeated season. And it's like, wow, you don't realize if he's saying that about him, what he'll say about you when you're gone. You haven't had half the career that same guy he's talking about, right? And so to see it happen to myself by one of my actual teammates who was there, who was in that room when they down-talked the other teammate, Tommy Tupperville did, and for him to go on video and make disparaging remarks about me and my time in school when I was a 40-game starter at that school where he didn't start over 20 games. (laughs) And he's older than me. So it happens, and they separate you. They give you something. And what I said on HBO in 2011 was that your teammate will tell you about raping someone before he would tell you that he's getting money because he knows you're involved with women on campus. But what he doesn't know 
is that you're getting money from the team, the coaches or alumni like he is. So he's hesitant to tell you what's going on when it comes to money, but not any other uh, behavior or acts of degraded action, I say, that represent him as a person. I do want to clarify for the audience. You said you spoke of that in 2011. You did appear on Real Sports with Brian Gumbel in 2011. Is that correct? Yes, and I was interviewed by Andrea Kramer okay. in New York. Andrea Kramer, that's a in NFL circles and you know, journalism circles should be a, a very familiar name. But that's you know just a compelling presentation and laying out you know the college landscape. And I, it goes without saying, I think for most folks who you know who look at the game and really analyze it with consciousness, you know the lack of of ethics that go into college athletics in general. I do want to ask more about yourself. And if I'm not mistaken, you're a second generation football player. Your dad was a college quarterback. Just talk about, you know, kind of your upbringing and because, you know, you, you played football, but no disrespect to football players. There's, you know, varying levels of intellect and intelligence and and consciousness, but the way you're talking, I really, we just don't hear that from a lot of football players. So I just want to kind of get an understanding just of your upbringing and, you know, maybe seeing some of your dad's experiences and how that shaped you as a man and as a football player. Well, my dad was about 34 when he had me, so I I wasn't there. And also, I grew up in a different town from my dad, so his people weren't necessarily there to really share these stories. But I did know that my father played football. I knew my father played sports. My my mother's family looked at my father as the biggest, strongest man they've ever seen. He was their male role model in her family. And they just talked about him so much over the years, even before he passed. It wasn't until after my father passed that I really looked into his story. I went through his yearbook. And I saw that my father wasn't just a football player. He was the quarterback. He was the point guard. He was the pitcher. And he also was uh, the class president and vice uh, and valedictorian of his 1967 class at FAMU High. And so I'm like, man, what made my dad go so hard, right? You know, what made him push for these things? And how did his peers kind of see him because he was able to accomplish that? Well, my father got drafted in the Vietnam War after he graduated high school, and he got a two-year deferment from the governor of Florida. It's hard thinking about a black man getting the ferment from the governor of Florida these days, let alone <laughs> seven. But when you realize that you have a storied program in FAMU, not just FAMU High, but in FAMU, they were one of the top programs in the 60s in the state of Florida. And yeah, it meant a lot for him to be able to go to FAMU down the road, be a local boy and make it big. But my father uh, didn't want to um, acknowledge that deferment. And after two years, he had to leave college. So a lot of what I did and accomplished and endured through college was based on knowing my father was considered one of the smartest people everybody say they ever met. And he didn't get to finish college. And he died as a uh, manager at a factory for Procter & Gamble in Albany, Georgia. And like, I feel like he didn't get to live up to his potential. I think he had a huge impact on people. But ultimately, knowing how my father wasn't a hard man, but he required a lot of effort from his children and we didn't get to just ask questions ad nauseum like our children do with us my father made me go read encyclopedias and i had to come up with a report me and my sister and my brother like we had to actually go read and know what we were talking about we didn't just get to ask him questions and him tell us about things we had to prove that we were willing to learn and had that ability so knowing that And knowing my father died when I was 12, and then four years later, my mother died uh, at the beginning of my junior campaign in high school, it was, I have a huge loss in data. A lot of things I didn't know yet, things I didn't get to have conversations with my parents yet. So I kind of turned into a researcher uh, at a very young age and continued throughout after college and other things like that to learn more about my family, know, know more about my city and where my father came from and his side of the family and what his trajectory was. But ultimately, when I got to this point where I was going to leave Auburn in my junior year because I felt like the coaches didn't care for me and they didn't necessarily want me to succeed, and I told them I'm losing too much by being here. I have to make it. I cannot go through these years, lose my childhood home, and not making it in the NFL. And, you know, I hate that I was a 
one I, I grew to the position of being a one-dimensional player because my classes they interfered with football so i was asked to change my major after starting as a true freshman and this came directly from Tuberville. So in 2004, before that undefeated season in the spring, when I discussed with my O-line coach, Hugh Nall, who uh, lives in, uh, outside of my hometown now as a CEO of a trucking company, I basically said, nobody wants me to be here. These guys don't care if I make it and I cannot afford to not make it, coach. I'm thinking about transferring. He's told me he was my number one fan and the, the don't even think about going anywhere. Just go have my spring meeting with Tuberville and he'll explain it all. So time I walked into that conversation, it was, you're our number one player. You're the reason why we win. Here's how it breaks down, you know. And, oh, yeah, if you want to uh, do the major, I get the classes changed for you because we need you here. And I'm like, Coach, I'm already on uh, track to graduate soon. I don't plan on switching my major again. I've already lost too much time because of that. So I'm not worried about that. But when he told me I was his number one player, you know, every player wants to hear that. For sure. And I would also go and say every player hasn't heard that. A lot of people think that these coaches just tell you anything and everything to any player. They don't have any reason to do that to any player. And so here I am. I started my full sophomore year. I started three games freshman year, and this is going into my junior season. Well, after I signed with Auburn, I said they got a good young team. They're going to learn a lot about themselves over the next two years. This is the SEC. I know they can run the ball. I saw Cadillac, but I also know of Ronnie Brown from high school uh, and his efforts and what he could bring to the table. And I believed in them as players of their position. But I also was looking forward to Jason Campbell kind of stepping up and being the leader that we needed because I grew up wanting to play with players like Joe Hammond and Woodrow Dazzler and things like that as my quarterback. My first D1 game was Florida State versus Miami where Deion Sanders' jersey was retired. Mm -hmm. And here's my father's hometown at a school that if he came out and wanted to go to Florida State in 1967, they weren't going to have him. They didn't have their first black player to 1969, and that black player came from Miami. And Miami's first black player in 1969 came from Tallahassee. Like, they didn't want these black players coming to their campus and bringing a whole side of town with them. Mm. But you weren't going to bring in a local black player at that time because there were going to be thousands of people trying to see them and support them on this particular stage, causing other issues on your campus and at your stadium because we were not welcome. Well, when you grow up, knowing you're not necessarily welcome in these environments, you look at the coaches that are recruiting you differently than a player who comes from an environment where they're just hoping to make it out. I wasn't a player just hoping to make it out. I had been around black politicians. I had been around black doctors my whole life. But even more importantly, the same way you see Nick Saban offering eighth graders, I received these offers from head coaches at HBCUs in the sixth and seventh grade because I was 6'2 and, and 230 pounds as a seventh grader, right? So I had these type of relationships growing up in my hometown. My father went to FAMU. My mother went to Albany State and Fort Valley State. And one of the Albany State coaches lived in my neighborhood, you know, like I had a, a great connection to this stuff. So I was introduced to it very early on. I just lost both of my parents when I actually went through that process. So the black colleges actually backed off and I didn't receive an offer to any black colleges while I was on campus at Albany State in high school taking classes at college, you know. Former players, Antonio Leroy, saw me like, man, what are you doing? You going here, man? You play ball? And I told him who I was. He's like, oh, you're the Riddick boy. Oh, man, what's up, man? What you going to do? Well, I was hoping a school like Albany State or FAMU would make me an offer I couldn't refuse uh, because these are the games I grew up going to. I only went to that one Florida State game. You know, in the two or three games I went to in high school that were D1, Georgia Tech games, UCF games, and stuff like that, and Auburn game. Like, I really wasn't checking for their schools. I know their players. I know what they accomplished, but I was raised in the HBCU system. So I had expectations that those schools were going to recruit me just as hard, especially since I consider myself a legacy. So I was hoping for that. That didn't happen. You end up at a school like Auburn, and I'm like, of course, I'm being presented with situations where 
Tommy Tuberville and his older cousin who was on staff, you know, calling another player a nigger and having to get fired. That same kid was a very respectful kid, a very nice kid. He wasn't, he didn't come for the bravada. He didn't, he didn't have an attitude. I just say this, he wasn't hip hop, you know, he didn't have that flair to him at all. And for you to call that kid a nigga, you know, really lets you know who you are, but also who Tuberville's family is. So Tuberville did fire that gentleman, but that same gentleman was the one white male at that school that treated me with the most respect. You know, he treated me with the most respect because he has an understanding and a love for the game that he considered me one of the baddest men he ever seen. And so I'm not surprised that he showed me this respect because coming from where I come from, it, regardless of your political beliefs, regardless of your racial identity and beliefs, like hard men who work hard respect other hardworking men. And that's who I tried to pattern myself out of because that's the type of man I was raised by. So regardless of you didn't want to invite me to your home or want me dating your daughter, you're going to respect me as a man. And I'm not surprised that that guy showed me more respect than he showed other black players because of way, the way I handled myself. But Tuberville, I mean, he's an interesting character. Just like any player, the coaches are going to push you. They're going to challenge you. They're going to put you in situations where you kind of are stressed and you have to respond accordingly to win their favor. <clears throat> well, my experience with coaches growing up is a little bit different. And there's only really one coach I really respect, and that was my middle school coach. And he lived in my same neighborhood and went to college with my mother as well. So he was a guy who made us work hard, and I feel like that level in middle school was the hardest I had to work to play football uh, in my life. And that's kind of what motivated me over the years. Like, man, this is easier than what we did in middle school. You know, you get to college, like, man, this is easier than what we did in middle school. You get to the NFL, like, bro, we ain't even sweating out here, bro. Like, how you gonna prepare for the game? It's different. This stuff is easy. I'm like, of course, because I'm a down South Georgia boy, is what I'm saying, you know. And it's all these other players that play in and around me and from the area. And so I'm like, man, this is how we're going to make it. This is how we're going to transcend these things. And I have an opportunity to kind of really bring my city forward with football. So working in the environment with a Tuberville, you're going to see challenges that you may not see. But when I thought about transferring, what if I walk into the same exact situation when I go to Texas? Because the O-line coach at Texas uh, was the O-line coach at Georgia Tech, and he recruited me heavily. And then thought about Miami as well, but I didn't really like their offensive line coach. I didn't think that they ever really had a good O-line, and their O-linemen never really had good technique. So but those are two of the schools I was considering. I'm like, how do I know I'm not going to walk into the same situation? My name is Lauren Macon, and you are listening to Making a Difference with my handsome husband, Ken Macon. This is Donald Doe and Michael Doe with Family Financial Consultants. Do you need help with Medicare, with affordable mortgage and life insurance, building an estate for your child? We provide these types of services for you and much more. As independent insurance brokers, we take pride in coming into people's homes and not only saving them money, but changing their lives. Imagine only paying a few dollars for your medicine instead of hundreds, or cutting the cost of your insurance premiums. Our goal is to provide affordable policies tailored to your individual needs. Give us a call at 803-293-8915 or 706-503-3933. Family Financial Consultants, LLC, located at 412 Edgefield Road in North Augusta, South Carolina. Agents work for companies, but a broker works for you. It's the West Coast Diva. Tell them, follow the leader. It's yo, yo. You're listening to Making the Difference with Ken Making. I want to uh, just jump in there real quick, and I, I wanted to ask a, a point, because you, you know, talk, in talking about your personal experience, and I, and I would certainly just you know, my condolences, obviously, you know, that, that happened to you at a very young age, but still, man, losing your parents so young, it creates just a, a level of uncertainty and yes. there and lack of trust for sure. And that's, and, and I, and I would say, I think that's what happens to so many of these, you know, young black men that we're talking about is just various levels of uncertainty, whether it be personal tragedy or poverty or whatever it is. And I think it just leads or lends rather to exploitation and yes, sir. 
in your case, it, it seems like that that was something you were able to rise above. But just um, because, and, and I'm saying all of this within the context of Tuberville, because, you know, we, we hear the Tuberville comments, and I think the first thing that, you know, black folks say, and particularly, you know, folks with the HBCU background is, well, that's why you don't go to those schools anyway. And, you know, this is why, you know, what Prime is doing and what, you know, is happening at these black schools is so important. But I, I really just want to talk to you about why players continue to remain you know, why, why are you still going to Clemson to play for that coach? Or why are you still going to this university to play for that coach if you know how they treat us? Um, talk about some of the – just the adversity that players are, are dealing with and, and some of the desperation that they feel, and that's that's why they end up staying at these schools. I was aware of the desperation because my high school teammate was a walk-on at Clemson. He had the ability to walk on because his family owned eight pharmacies in the region. But they had players that were trying to commit suicide in their dorm rooms in like 2000, 2001. So that was something I kind of made me take a step back and think about this environment and what we're going into. Why I felt like I was strong enough and capable of doing it. You know, you think like, where do you come from? What have you survived already? So that was my motivation. Like, I walked a straight path since my parents passed. Uh, my family kind of took a step back and kind of watched to see what was going to happen as opposed to being more intentional and being there for me. So I had 100% confidence that I could persevere through any storm in any situation. When they talk about sports being very political, they talk about those environments, and they talk about the coaches. Well, I did see Tuberville as a politician. I was man enough to look him in the eye and tell him he's not a coach. He's a politician. And he smirked and walked away only for him to run for office, you know, 15 <laughs> plus years later, telling all the uh, all the voters that, hey, I'm not a I'm not a politician. I'm a football coach, man. I know how to lead men and bring people together and win championships I'm like, no, nah, you're still a politician, my man, you know, and the comments that you're making stoking the base of Trump is very, very specific. Some people and some of your former players hope that that's not how you truly feel, even as they deny what they experienced with this person and they deny the experience of how he talked to them. So the players are remaining in this environment and going to these predominantly white schools where they be power five or not. Right. Because guys are going to all kinds of schools out there that aren't power five schools over HBCUs right now. And. You have a coach that basically tells them what they want to hear. In our community, we have a culture where we do not go over the top and glorify an individual uh, just because of their sports prowess. Yes, they want this player for their sports prowess, but if you come to our school, you need to be a FAMU man. You need to be a Jackson State man. You need to be a Howard man. And you have to uphold things that you're not necessarily going to be asked to uphold at these other schools because we're not going to look the other way just because you score touchdowns. And so that's an understanding. Well, now you have Dion and you have other coaches telling these other players kind of what they want to hear. And it's not just the transfer portal, but you have players in high school that have opportunities to go to power five schools and they're really listening to the coaches. But when I was coming out, no, those same coaches were not recruiting me the way they recruited the players that they felt they could land. And that's kind of not being a leader, not being a general. And the idea that, no, I don't necessarily want to play for a coach that's not confident in his ability to land me as a recruit. So that's one of the reasons why they're there and why they're staying. Yes, they have the platform. Yes, they have the uh, profile. But Auburn wasn't considered a powerhouse in college football when I came out. Florida State was. Miami was. Georgia also was not. Auburn, def I mean, well, Auburn, of course, wasn't. But Alabama was kind of on their downfall and on their deathbed because of allegations and restrictions. But they still won the state of Alabama every year, no matter how many times Auburn beat them when it came to recruiting. So to know that the top players in the state of Alabama that are from these different towns could also go to Alabama A&M, Alabama State, Miles, Tuskegee, 
like I say, the state of Alabama has the most black colleges, mm -hmm. <clears throat> yet they have the state where Auburn and Alabama won multiple championships and they've been on top for a while with the very same players from that state, from these black belt towns who have friends and family that went to HBCUs. <clears throat> well, nobody can deny what Nick Saban has built at Alabama. Alabama was even more of a tent pole decades ago. So what changed? To be honest with you, I think the recruitment of office of linemen, black office of linemen, some of the biggest, smartest athletes on the field going to predominantly white schools changed the ability to perform for HBCUs. When I was in college, fam, you actually had the largest O-line in football, NFL or otherwise. But yeah, that play of those individuals didn't necessarily translate to that team performing that way. But they had the size. So it's not just a size difference, right? There's a talent gap. And we identify the talent on that youth level based on when you go to a camp. You can be good and help your team win state, but if you don't go to the Nike camp, how, how good do they know you are? They don't know where you measure up against all the other players when it comes to 40, bench, and size and other things like that. So they don't really have to recognize until one of these ranking systems uh, actually puts you in the database, right? So there you go. I played guard in high school, but they had me ranked as the number 30th tackle in the country. Oh, wow. Why am I ranked uh, number 30th tackle when I should probably be the number top five guard? And when I went on my recruiting visits, I was treated like I was the number one player there. When I went on my visit at Florida uh, with Gavin Dickey from Tallahassee Lincoln and then another gentleman from North Carolina who was the number one tackle in the country, was the number one office lineman in the country that ultimately did his signing day on ESPN and signed with Ohio State. Ron Zook didn't talk to them. He talked to me. I told him I was going to leave the visit early, and Ron Zook and his O-line coach, Joe Wickline, brought me into the um, one of the suites at the stadium in the swamp and talked to me for an hour and a half trying to convince me to come to uh, Florida, telling me that I could be a great two-way player for them and other things like that. I'm ready to start right now at the university. I just told Coach, I said, they're not going to give you more than three years here after Steve Spurrier. And, of course, he went on to get fired after three years. But once again, I'm still holding out hopes that one of these HBCUs that I'm already affiliated with has enough balls to offer me. Because here I am trying to make my father proud, you know. So the week before that Florida visit, I was scheduled to go to Florida State. I spent half the week the weekend at Auburn, and I was going to finish my weekend in Florida State. Well, they called me and asked me to reschedule to the following weekend because they didn't have anything going on by meaning they didn't have anything going on. Florida State uses FAMU to recruit. So they wait for FAMU to have events, to have a big crowd that they can take black players to the FAMU parties mm -hmm. to make them feel like that's a part of what FSU has to offer. So I just canceled my visit altogether. You know, I'm like, you're not going to use my father's university to recruit me here because you wouldn't give my father a scholarship, you know, so I'm not even going to consider it. And I just took them off the list altogether. What's going on, everybody? It's Knife Wonder right here, man. And you're checking out Making a Difference with my man Ken Macon. Keep it locked. Peace. Do you need insurance for your car, home, life or business? Then trust Jay Harvey, your Allstate insurance agent in Evans, Georgia. He opened his agency in 2017 because he loves helping and working with people. As a husband and father, he understands the importance of helping families prepare for the unexpected. You can get a personalized insurance quote today by calling 706-434-8106. Jay's office is located at 3118-8 William Few Parkway in Evans, Georgia. Remember, you're in good hands with Jay Harvey, your neighborhood Allstate insurance agent. This episode of Making a Difference and every episode moving forward will honor the life and legacy of my dear brother, James Macon. James had a way of telling the truth that endeared him to family and made him respected by his friends and peers. That standard is now my gift and my burden of responsibility. Long live St. James. When you listen to Making a Difference, you're listening to independent black media. And we need your support now more than ever. When it comes to Making a Difference, there are 
a lot of different ways that you can show love to what we're doing here. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. On Facebook, it's facebook.com backslash making, M-A-K-I-N, a different show. On Twitter, the handle is difference making, M-A-K-I-N. You can also support us financially through both Cash App and Patreon. Patreon, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash making a difference show. You can also support us on Cash App at dollar sign making a different show. Thank you in advance for your support, and I love you so much. Peace. I do want to ask you about HBCUs in general. And, you know, you talked about just offensive line play. And I think Dion is working on that. Just, you know, I, I, he understands that the play in the trenches is so important. But I, I, I do want to ask you, ironically enough, just about infrastructure within the context of HBCUs. What has Dion meant to, to black college football? And we had talked earlier, and you made some great comments about Prime and just his influence, not just obviously with black college uh, football, but with PWIs as well, just with his time at Florida State. Just kind of talk about that impact. I mean, I can see the increased engagement around social media and more people willing to have these conversations or being interested in these conversations. But like I said, I come from a town in South Georgia that they're largely Georgia fans. So they didn't actually watch my, my all my games at Auburn. They weren't wearing Auburn gear rooting for me when I had an undefeated season. They were still wearing Georgia gear. So I am somewhat confused because all of these people representing different HBCUs in general kind of cheering prime on when the football culture is kind of fucked the other side. <laughs> you know, it's always been like that, right, in general. So I was like, man, why are we holding hands now around Prime? Oh, yeah, because he's always been treated like this his whole life. Everybody acknowledged that he's the best athlete on the field. Everybody told him how great he was. Everybody watched him do amazing things. Everybody believes in him. But do they believe in HBCUs? Do they believe in their own HBCUs, the ones that they attended, if they did, right? Because I see the same idolatry that all celebrities get. I don't think it's too different. And he could be a man on a mission. But like I said in the previous conversation, Prime is the reason we went to these predominantly white schools because there he was, his authentic self on campus, on video, in interviews at Florida State. And he was somewhat bucking the system as a two-sport athlete because he could kind of come and go as he pleased in comparison to the other players. And his bank account at that time looked a lot different than the other players' bank account that were on that football team. So he's always had it his way. And you can give an individual enough support that they stay honest, right? And that's what I believe. I feel like a lot of people that seem to be scammers, they kind of bail out before the job is done. They're not actually scammers. If they had more support, they would stay down and hold down. So the confidence that everybody has in Dion being very intentional about what he's doing at Jackson State and for HBCUs definitely has me baffled because it's different than what I've seen over the years. But the celebrity aspect, I, that's not really different. I was only taken aback by his comments towards Reggie Theist and thinking about now you have these prominent athletes that became athletic directors at HBCUs and Reggie Theist and then previously uh, Kellen Winslow Sr. And Dion is now kind of calling tasks their credibility with regards to moving the Bethune-Cookman Jackson State game to uh, Jacksonville and saying it's going to be a bad look. So Dion knows what's going to be a bad look, but the black man that was a former professional athlete that's in academic administration doesn't know what's going to be a bad look. That's different. That's kind of making a statement. And I know that the Dion supporters are going to kind of take his words and run with it and not look at the credibility of Reggie Theus. So I think he is in a position where if he realizes that he is really a catalyst in this conversation and he is changing how people feel about other black people, I don't think being prime is the most important thing here. Him being himself and he gets to be prime, I don't think that's the most important thing that's going on because he's going to have to do it himself if these other guys don't jump on, jump in line and lock and step with him. 
And yes, he may be the most prominent figure in HBCU sports right now. But no, he isn't the person that got him to this point. And we haven't seen a conversation where he acknowledges the history and has an understanding of that history to see how they got this far. Just coming in and saying they should be getting more money and we need to stop accepting deals that we've accepted that he doesn't think are good deals. Well, tell us about all the information you have that you had to be able to make that judgment prior to actually being in your position at Jackson State, because it seems like you formed these ideas before you actually got the keys to any castle in HBCU. You said these things and you felt these things well before you became the head coach. So I think he definitely has the opportunity. I think people actually have to have a vision of where they think he's going to be able to believe how authentic he is being in his support of HBCUs, because I think largely everybody ultimately feels like if he stays a coach, he should be a coach at a power five school. And the should be is because of the type of money and influence they see coaches having, not just because he went to Florida state and his alma mater is a power five, right? They think he should get that opportunity because they want to see him on that stage and they want to they want him to be celebrated much in the way that Nick Saban has. And so that's a that's a strange thought as you automatically put him in the position to have to compete with the Nick Saban and create a Nick Saban like resume in this previous career when Nick Saban also coached at Michigan State and didn't win anything, right? Nick Saban also was on other staffs that didn't win anything in his prior career. So wanting him to be on the mantle and stand side by side Nick Saban as he's the black version of Nick Saban, I think that is a recipe for disaster and letdown because we're not giving him an opportunity to really grow into his self as a coach. We're putting expectations on his career that are definitely, you know, not welcome. He's not worried about it, but the media perception alone lends to regular people who are have a good heart and good intention getting attacked verbally because they don't fall in line with everything Dion says. That's that's heavy. And when I think about just your commentary and what you're saying, and we look at what I see in terms of just the differences when we talk about HBCU or PWI, and I'm actually working on something like this now. I, I really want people to understand the term land-grant institution. And so mm-hmm. when you look at the Morrell Act of 1862 and how it established institutions like Georgia and Clemson and LSU and why a second Morrell Act was mandated yeah. and required in 1890, it was because you had black people who want to attend school that were not allowed into these institutions. And so in 1890 and thereafter, you got your, your FAMUs, you know, yep, Negro and normal schools, right? right? And yep. so when people say things like, you know, well, and, and what you're saying is, so you have people who say that Dion should be at a power five school saying that Jackson State is lesser. And so mm-hmm. you, you indict and you create a destiny for black schools that, again, does not respect the, his, the previous history of HBCUs. It disregards the bullet Bob Hayes and the fact that South Carolina State University has more pro NFL Hall of Famers than South Carolina and Clemson combined, you just you completely disregard that history. And ultimately mm-hmm. what it comes down to is the fact that you don't understand or that mm-hmm. people on the whole don't understand that the difference is in the disparities. It's the money that yeah. Clemson got that yeah. South Carolina state doesn't have. It's the money that Fl- the university of Florida got that fam. You doesn't have And shout out those, the, the, the Rattler six down there at fam. You man, that they're suing mm-hmm. the state of Florida. They should be suing all through the Southeast. Yep, they definitely should be. So I do want to trans- yeah, it, go ahead. Go ahead, Troy. I'm it, sorry. No, ahead. I'm just saying, yes, it's an immediate uh, disparity and it's known. But even in my time, I watched more defensive backs get drafted from Bethune, Cookman and Tuskegee than Auburn and some other power five schools in the SEC. And they had the higher ranked player. The player played in bigger games and these other players still got drafted and some of them didn't from SEC schools. And so like the economic disparities, when we look at facilities, campus, gear and all kinds of things, the opportunity of the bowl games, the platforms, 
it is definitely a very telling thing. And I think Dion is definitely kind of right when he's talking about how we package ourselves and how we present ourselves. But I also know that we have serious academics, a part of all these universities, and they're looking at all the data, everything that's there. And Dion may not see a closed door for him individually because they're going to have conversations with Prime. But he hasn't necessarily been tasked with representing these universities on any of these deals and had someone kind of throw a laughable deal in his face. I imagine him bringing it to public when something like that could happen. But he's going to learn that the way you do business, the way you get deals done in your domain is not the way that we do them. And you're not going to have any influence over these television deals. You're not going to have any influence over these rights to the IPs because the schools still need the money and they still have all the bargaining power. And that was that goes back to a Supreme decision that was made in the 80s. The the late great Eddie Robinson spoke up against that and said, look, if you take away this control from the NCAA and, you know, you give it to individual schools again, we're talking about more disparities. So, yeah, Troy, this has been an incredible conversation. I look truly don't want to cut you short. I do want to. Note that you are working in advocacy uh, as we speak in terms of player unionization, in terms of paying the players. Can you talk about that and just some of what you're doing in that space? Yes, I'm currently on the leadership council for the College Football Players Association, and we are collectively organizing our efforts, alumni, active players and future college football players to be able to provide supportive services, resources and to be at the table down the line to make sure that we can negotiate on behalf of said players. We have an uphill battle kind of building this legion of people for this movement because I may have had a conversation with hundreds of players that think we should be paid at the collegiate level and be able to make money off of their likeness and other things and think they should advocate for health care and other supportive services. Yet, they may be coaching high school football and they may want to attend games. And so they feel like if they are seen and on the record supporting a movement advocating for athletes, that they're going to lose access. And they feel they need that access to get the players that they're working with now into these colleges. These coaches on the high school level aren't going to suggest that the players look into entities like ours because they don't want any distractions. They want the players' hearts, minds. So they can go out there and put their bodies on the line, right? Ultimately, these are the same coaches that are accepting twenty and fifty thousand dollars when a certain player signs with a certain school. You know, you have situations where coach from my hometown participated in uh, the state championship and then immediately stepped down, and it was said that he may have accepted some money on behalf of one of his top recruits. And you know, they didn't necessarily want that to come out, so he went on ahead and resigned. And, well, that guy just jumped on another staff that's a top program that gets national attention in the region where we come from. And, you know, he's going to kind of ride the coattails to kind of see when he can get his next head coaching job. Well, that same person wouldn't even allow me to coach his lineman for free when I returned home when he was working at one of my uh, hometown schools or whatever, his alma mater. And I was like, hey, I want to work with him for free, man. I do this training. I do it at Nike camps. I'm all out here on the West Coast. We got these big lineman camps going on. But I want to come and do something for the guys where I come from for free. And he had no interest in it because these guys don't want any outside influence. They don't want people to know what's going on in their programs. So they operate just like the patriarchal society and the dominant white society currently. They use the same tools and tactics. They go to the coaching clinics and they emulate these very white coaches that have these opinions like Tommy Tuberville because they want their spot. They want their piece of the pie and they want to be able to be respected and be notable and have their names brought up in the way that these white coaches are. So they mimic a lot of the same behavior. And I think that's what's so refreshing for a lot of people that Dion has no interest in being that way. But Dion has always only had that interest in being himself. He was never rejected for his identity. He was never rejected for his personal appearance. He was never rejected for his personal morals when it comes to family and leadership. So here we are in this position and he's found a new throne to stand on where he's praised like he's always been. 
And yeah, that's home for him. But does home for him equate to home for all of us? And I think that's where we're kind of targeting, like, what is his plan? No, he doesn't have a particular plan. He plans on approaching every opportunity he gets the same way he always has to get the best deal for him and his interests. It's not about him individually, but these interests that he has with Jackson State are very much his and nobody else's. Therefore, we know he's looking to negotiate on behalf of his people, his team, and some say his sons and act like he's playing daddy ball. But the truth of the matter is he's always looked out for his interests and he doesn't have enough money to not want to get a hundred million dollar contract like Brian Kelly did from LSU. No, he doesn't have that much money that he doesn't need a hundred million dollars. So yeah, I do expect him to get a ridiculous offer one day, but I look like, I look at what it took uh, Kevin Sumlin to get the deal he got at Texas A&M in the past and how long he had to kind of stay down and buy his time at Houston to get that opportunity. So does Dion have a similar trajectory? No, nah, he doesn't. He doesn't have to go through that same hoop. But as far as the impact goes, I just look forward to seeing what he does with it. You know, I look forward to seeing after his sons finish school, you know, where is it, where were his loyalties lie at that time? And knowing that he can move on and be himself, that Jackson State always has a place in his heart, you know, he doesn't have the same burden that people are placing on him to uphold HBCU sports forever. He's not he's not going to be your Eddie Robinson. He has no intentions on being an Eddie Robinson. But the fact that we're looking for another Eddie Robinson by kind of placing that same mantle on Dion's shoulders before he he's proven any of it is a very interesting take on our community because we like celebrities. A, a lot of different topics, you know, were just discussed here today. I think we, you know, they were woven together in a masterful way, in a very introspective way. And Troy, like I said, man, just uh, love you, appreciate you, man, and you know, just grateful to have this conversation with you, man. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for the opportunity to communicate with you. The revolution will not be televised. You see, a lot of times people see, 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 see battles and skirmishes on TV and they say, aha, the revolution is being televised. Nah, the results of the revolution are being televised. The first revolution is when you change your mind about how you look at things and see that there might be another way to look at it that you have not been shown. What you see later on is the results of that, but the revolution, that change that takes place will not be televised.